My name is Davy Davis, and I'm reading from a piece called David Wanarovich that I wrote for my newsletter, which is called David, and it's about people named David. There has always been literature of pandemic because there have always been pandemics. Out of this tradition came St. Sebastian, the patron saint of the plague-stricken. His feast day is, if you can believe it, on January 20th, the same day that, this year, the first person on American soil was diagnosed with COVID-19. Though St. Sebastian was beaten to death in 287 AD, and today is associated primarily with the bubonic plague, the images you've probably seen of him show him tied up and lacerated with arrows, a beautiful youth suffering a slow and measured execution, an Adonis in pain. There's a reason why he's come to symbolize a homoerotic ideal, as Richard A.K. wrote, that he evoked the violent pagan joy of Yukio Mishima's first orgasm. Gay beauty knows it is doomed. Gay beauty, as we know it, is inextricable from death. I started EMDR a month before the coronavirus pandemic hit, but canceled the remainder of my sessions because they cost money I now can't spare. My sister will soon be out of a job, and too many of my gay family will need even more help than they did before. My own job has suddenly become uncertain. I have no idea how long I'll be able to afford rent, much less my student loan payments and my medical bills. I hadn't even begun the process of EMDR itself, but I had completed the inventory, where you tell the therapist about all of your traumas, particularly the moments where you thought you were going to die. That's when PTSD happens, they say, when your body thinks it is going to die. The inventory was hard, not because I was forced to recount some of my most frightening memories, but because I couldn't decide which of them merited inclusion. Reading to me from a list of prompts, my therapist took careful notes of things I didn't think were all that notable. When I was six, for example, our apartment burned down and seemed to ignore the things I thought should have carried more weight. I've yet to encounter a non-transsexual medical professional that understands the trauma of forced puberty. When I thought it worthwhile to explain, I've always gotten the impression that they didn't believe me. It's not easy for me to come up with times I consciously thought I was going to die, which I think means I'm very lucky. I have not been in a war zone. No one has held a gun to my face. I haven't found myself in a hospital bed, wondering if I'd be leaving the building in a body bag. But there have been many times where I thought I would soon die, because of my autoimmune disease's destruction of my body, or because I was in so much debt, or because I was afraid I was going to kill myself. My therapist asked me whether I'd witnessed natural disasters or someone else's final moments, whether I'd been raped or beaten. While some of these things have happened, while some of the things that have happened to me fit those descriptions, some didn't, some refused to. How was I to categorize the events for which there were no questions? How was I to talk about discrete fears of death amidst long-term terrors, nightmares, psychotic episodes, jobs and identities with high mortality rates, living with abusers? When I found out that my first top surgery operation had been botched, I thought I was dying. The room tunneled. The lights burned. When I laid down for the male nurse to unbandage me so he could remove my drains, I thought that he was going to rape me. Then I thought that I was going to kill him. When I got home, 
For the first time in years, I began to plan killing myself. My sister talked to me for a long time. That helped. I couldn't bear to think of my dead body with the chest I was trying to escape. That helped too. For comfort, I read David Wanarovich's The Weight of the Earth. It comforted me. After he was diagnosed with HIV, David thought a lot about his own impending death. David said he was trying to understand what I fear about death, like what I fear about living, what comes out of the two, what rockets or ricochets between the two ends of the spectrum, if indeed it's a spectrum at all, but none of that matters. Like David, many of us are monitoring ourselves for symptoms right now, not knowing what they mean or portend. In the weight of the earth, he moves between anger and sadness and acceptance and joy and confusion and defiance. But really, he says, I just don't want to fucking die. A few weeks after I got my bandages off, my partner at the time flew me to New York to visit them. We went to David's exhibit at the Whitney, where I was captivated by his painting, Peter Hujar Dreaming, Yukio Mishima, St. Sebastian. I had never seen it before. I was impassioned, horny, and challenged, worried, and disturbed the colors. I had not known that St. Sebastian, a figure I knew from Mishima and Egon Shaila and Damien Hurst, had appeared in David's work. When I moved to Brooklyn six months later, I was still healing. I was binding tightly every day, desperately hoping that the remaining breast tissue, almost the same amount as before, but scarred and painful, was mostly swelling like the surgeon said it might be. It wasn't. After the surgery, she avoided my calls and emails, but I still had to pay five grand to be cut open for nothing. In February, my friend Dahlia came to visit me. A new friend, Elle, took photos of a scene that Dahlia and I did together. The sadness I felt in the year and a half between my first surgery and the second only went away when my loved ones made me bleed. The following summer, a year after I went to the Whitney for the first time to see the other David, I went again to see myself. There on the wall was a giant photograph of my bloodied thigh, with Dahlia's gloved hand holding a blade next to the word that the blood spelled. In his memoir, Close to the Knives, David wrote, Transition is always a relief. Destination means death to me. If I could figure out a way to remain forever in transition, in the disconnected and unfamiliar, I could remain in a state of perpetual freedom. As a transsexual, a gay person, and a sick person, this means many things to me. When we read it in the context of the years David lived with HIV and AIDS, it means many more. It is accurate, if simplistic, to remark on the courage of a gay man who embraced freedom, regardless of the consequences. David, sainted victim of the plague of his time, was more than brave. He loved pleasure and fucking and gay people. He loved himself before and after. That is how he survived, even when he died. I've written a lot about David's pleasure because I think it is pleasure that it is at the root of his art and his activism. There is something about his pleasure-seeking that is remarkable to me. It's not escapist, traumatized but actualizing, probing. That kind of curiosity is rare. It's actual pleasure-seeking rather than numbness-seeking. When you're reading or listening to him, 
David's reaction to the world seems like the most natural thing in the world. But then I look around me and see how very few people are able to do what he does, not through any fault of their own, but because that horror is so all-consuming. But I think we can do this, even if we don't survive. I think following pleasure makes us into lovers. I think pleasure is the way through.